0: SECTION 19 OF THE GREAT EVENTS BY FAMOUS HISTORIANS, VOLUME 6 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Maria James The Great Events by Famous HISTORIANS, VOLUME 6 Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd Signing of the Magna Carta AD 1215 by David Hume, PART 2 These were the principal articles, calculated for the interest of the barons, and had the charter contained nothing further, national happiness and liberty had been very little promoted by it, as it would only have tended to increase the power and independence of an order of men who were already too powerful, and whose yoke might have become more heavy on the people than even that of an absolute monarch but the barons who alone drew and imposed on the prince this memorable charter were necessitated to insert in it other clauses of a more extensive and more beneficent nature they could not expect the concurrence of the people without comprehending together with their own the interests of inferior ranks of men and all provisions which the barons for their own sake were obliged to make in order to ensure the free An equitable administration of justice tended directly to the benefit of the whole community. The following were the principal clauses of this nature. It was ordained that all the privileges and immunities above mentioned granted to the barons against the king should be extended by the barons to their inferior vassals. The king bound himself not to grant any writ empowering a baron to levy aid from his vassals, except in the three feudal cases. One weight and one measure shall be established throughout the kingdom. Merchants shall be allowed to transact all business without being exposed to any arbitrary tolls and impositions. They and all freemen shall be allowed to go out of the kingdom and return to it at pleasure london and all cities and burgs shall preserve their ancient liberties immunities and free customs aids shall not be required of them but by the consent of the great council no towns or individuals shall be obliged to make or support bridges but by ancient custom the goods of every freeman shall be disposed of according to his will if he die intestate his heirs shall succeed to them no officer of the crown shall take any horses carts or wood without the consent of the owner the king's courts of justice shall be stationary and shall no longer follow his person they shall be open to every one and justice shall no longer be sold refused or delayed by them circuits shall be regularly held every year the inferior tribunals of justice the county court sheriff's turn and court leet, Shall meet at their appointed time and place, the sheriffs shall be incapacitated to hold pleas of the Crown, and shall not put any person upon his trial from rumor or suspicion alone, but upon the evidence of lawful witnesses. No freeman shall be taken or imprisoned or dispossessed of his free tenement and liberties, or outlawed or banished, or anywise hurt or injured, unless by the legal judgment of his peers or by the law of the land, and all who suffered otherwise in this or the two former reigns, shall be restored to their rights and possessions. Every free man shall be fined in proportion to his fault, and no fine shall be levied on him to his utter ruin. Even a villain or rustic shall not by any fine be bereaved of his carts, ploughs, and implements of husbandry this was the only article calculated for the interests of this body of men probably at that time the most numerous in the kingdom it must be confessed that the former articles of the great charter contain such mitigations and explanations of the feudal law as are reasonable and equitable and that the latter involve all the chief outlines of a legal government, and provide for the equal distribution of justice and free enjoyment of property, the great objects for which political society was at first founded by men, which the people have a perpetual and unalienable right to recall, and which no time, nor precedent, nor statute, nor positive institution ought to deter them from keeping ever uppermost in their thoughts and attention though the provisions made by this charter might conformably to the genius of the age be esteemed too concise and too bare of circumstances to maintain the execution of its articles in opposition to the chicanery of lawyers supported by the violence of power time gradually ascertained the sense of all the ambiguous expressions and those generous barons who first extorted this concession still held their swords in their hands and could turn them against those who dared on any pretence to depart from the original spirit and meaning of the grant we may now from the tenor of this charter conjecture what those laws were of king edward which the english nation during so many generations still desired with such an obstinate perseverance to have recalled and established they were chiefly these latter articles of magna carta and the barons who at the beginning of these commotions demanded the revival of the saxon laws undoubtedly thought They had sufficiently satisfied the people by procuring them this concession, which comprehended the principal objects to which they had so long aspired. But what we are most to admire is the prudence and moderation of those haughty nobles themselves who were enraged by injuries, inflamed by opposition, and elated by a total victory over their sovereign. They were content, even in this plenitude of power, to depart from some articles of henry I's charter which they made the foundation of their demands particularly from the abolition of wardships a matter of the greatest importance and they seem to have been sufficiently careful not to diminish too far the power and revenue of the crown if they appear therefore to have carried other demands to too great a height it can be ascribed only to the faithless and tyrannical character of the king himself of which they had long had experience and which they foresaw would if they provided no further security lead him soon to infringe their new liberties and revoke his own concessions this alone gave birth to those other articles seemingly exorbitant which were added as a rampart for the safeguard of the great charter the barons obliged the king to agree that london should remain in their hands and the tower be consigned to the custody of the primate till the fifteenth of august ensuing or till the execution of the several articles of the great charter the better to ensure the same end he allowed them to choose five-and-twenty members from their own body as conservators of the public liberties and no bounds were set to the authority of these men either in extent or duration. If any complaint were made of a violation of the charter, whether attempted by the king, justiciaries, sheriffs, or foresters, any four of these barons might admonish the king to redress the grievance, if satisfaction were not obtained, they could assemble the whole council of twenty-five, who, in conjunction with the great council, were empowered to compel him to observe the charter and in case of resistance might levy war against him attack his castles and employ every kind of violence except against his royal person and that of his queen and children all men throughout the kingdom were bound under the penalty of confiscation to swear obedience to the twenty-five barons and the freeholders of each county were to choose twelve knights, who were to make report of such evil customs as required redress, conformably to the tenor of the great charter. The names of those conservators were the Earls of Clare, Albemarle, Gloucester, Winchester, Hereford, Roger Bigot, Earl of Norfolk, Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, William Marischal the Younger, Robert Fitzwalter, Gilbert de Clare, Eustace de Vesey, Gilbert Delaval, William de Mowbray, Geoffrey de Say, Roger de Montbazon, William de Huntingfield, Robert de Rue, the Constable of Chester, William de Aubigny, Richard de Percy, William Mallet, John Fitzrobert, William de Lanville, Hugh de Bigot, and Robert de Montfichet these men were by this convention really invested with the sovereignty of the kingdom they were rendered coordinate with the king or rather superior to him in the exercise of the executive power and as there was no circumstance of government which either directly or indirectly might not bear a relation to the security or observance of the great charter there could scarcely occur any incident in which they might not lawfully interpose their authority john seemed to submit passively to all these regulations however injurious to majesty he sent writs to all the sheriffs ordering them to constrain every one to swear obedience to the twenty-five barons he dismissed all his foreign forces he pretended that his government was thenceforth to run in a new tenor, and be more indulgent to the liberty and independence of his people. But he only dissembled till he should find a favourable opportunity for annulling all his concessions. The injuries and indignities which he had formerly suffered from the Pope and the King of France, as they came from equals or superiors, seemed to make but small impression on him but the sense of this perpetual and total subjection under his own rebellious vassals sank deep in his mind and he was determined at all hazards to throw off so ignominious a slavery he grew sullen silent and reserved he shunned the society of his courtiers and nobles he retired into the isle of wight as if desirous of hiding his shame and confusion but in this retreat he meditated the most fatal vengeance against all his enemies he secretly sent abroad his emissaries to enlist foreign soldiers and to invite the rapacious Brabissons into his service, by the prospect of sharing the spoils of England, and reaping the forfeitures of so many opulent barons, who had incurred the guilt of rebellion by rising in arms against him. And he dispatched a messenger to Rome, in order to lay before the Pope the great charter, which he had been compelled to sign, and to complain, before that tribunal, of the violence which had been imposed upon him. Innocent, considering himself as a feudal lord of the kingdom, was incensed at the temerity of the barons, who, though they pretended to appeal to his authority, had dared, without waiting for his consent, to impose such terms on a prince, who, by resigning to the Roman pontiff his crown and independence, had placed himself immediately under the papal protection. He issued, therefore, a bull, in which, from the plenitude of his apostolic power, and from the authority which god had committed to him to build and destroy kingdoms to plant and overthrow he annulled and abrogated the whole charter as unjust in itself as obtained by compulsion and as derogatory to the dignity of the apostolic see he prohibited the barons from exacting the observance of it. He even prohibited the king himself from paying any regard to it. He absolved him and his subjects from all oaths which they had been constrained to take to that purpose, and he pronounced a general sentence of excommunication against everyone who should persevere in maintaining such treasonable and iniquitous pretensions. The king, as his foreign forces arrived along with this bull, now ventured to take off the mask and under sanction of the pope's decree recalled all the liberties which he had granted to his subjects and which he had solemnly sworn to observe but the spiritual weapon was found upon trial to carry less force with it than he had reasoned from his own experience to apprehend the primate refused to obey the pope in publishing the sentence of excommunication against the barons and though he was cited to rome that he might attend a general council there assembled and was suspended on account of his disobedience to the pope and his secret correspondence with the king's enemies though a new and particular sentence of excommunication was pronounced by name against the principal barons john still found that his nobility and people and even his clergy adhered to the defence of their liberties and to their combination against him the sword of his foreign mercenaries was all he had to trust to for restoring his authority the barons after obtaining the great charter seem to have been lulled into a fatal security and to have taken no rational measures in case of the introduction of a foreign force for reassembling their armies The king was, from the first, master of the field, and immediately laid siege to the castle of Rochester, which was obstinately defended by William de Albany, at the head of a hundred and forty knights with their retainers, but was at last reduced by famine. John, irritated with the resistance, intended to have hanged the governor and all the garrison, But on the representation of william de molion who suggested to him the danger of reprisals he was content to sacrifice in this barbarous manner the inferior prisoners only the captivity of william de albany the best officer among the confederated barons was an irreparable loss to their cause and no regular opposition was thenceforth made to the progress of the royal arms the ravenous and barbarous mercenaries, incited by a cruel and enraged prince, were let loose against the estates, tenants, manors, houses, parks of the barons, and spread devastation over the face of the kingdom nothing was to be seen but the flames of villages and castles reduced to ashes the consternation and misery of the inhabitants tortures exercised by the soldiery to make them reveal their concealed treasures and reprisals no less barbarous committed by the barons and their partisans on the royal domains and on the estates of such as still adhered to the crown the king marching through the whole extent of england from dover to Berwick. Laid the provinces waste on each side of him, and considered every estate which was not his immediate property as entirely hostile and the object of military execution. The nobility of the north, in particular, who had shown greatest violence in the recovery of their liberties, and who, acting in a separate body, had expressed their discontent even at the concessions made by the great charter, as they could expect no mercy fled before him with their wives and families and purchased the friendship of alexander the young king of scots by doing homage to him the barons reduced to this desperate extremity and menaced with the total loss of their liberties their properties and their lives employed a remedy no less desperate and making applications to the court of france they offered to acknowledge louis the eldest son of philip for their sovereign on condition that he would afford them protection from the violence of their enraged prince though the sense of the common rights of mankind the only rights that are entirely indefeasible might have justified them in the deposition of their king they declined insisting before philip on a pretension which is commonly so disagreeable to sovereigns and which sounds harshly in their royal ears they affirmed that john was incapable of succeeding to the throne by reason of the attainder passed upon him during his brother's reign though that attainder had been reversed and richard had even by his last will declared him his successor they pretended that he was already legally deposed by sentence of the peers of france on account of the murder of his nephew Though that sentence could not possibly regard anything but his own transmarine dominions, which alone he held in vassalage to that crown. On more plausible grounds, they affirmed that he had already deposed himself by doing homage to the pope, changing the nature of his sovereignty, and resigning an independent crown for a fee under a foreign power. And as Blanche of Castile, the wife of Louis, was descended by her mother from Henry the Second, They maintained, though many other princes stood before her in the order of succession, that they had not shaken off the royal family in choosing her husband for their sovereign. Philip was strongly tempted to lay down the rich prize which was offered to him. The legate menaced him with interdicts and excommunications if he invaded the patrimony of St. Peter, or attacked a prince who was under the immediate protection of the Holy See but as philip was assured of the obedience of his own vassals his principles were changed with the times and he now undervalued as much all papal censures as he formerly pretended to pay respect to them his chief scruple was with regard to the fidelity which he might expect from the english barons in their new engagements and the danger of entrusting his son and heir into the hands of men who might on any caprice or necessity make peace with their native sovereign by sacrificing a pledge of so much value he therefore exacted from the barons twenty-five hostages of the most noble birth in the kingdom and having obtained this security he sent over first a small army to the relief of the confederates then more numerous forces which arrived with louis himself at their head the first effect of the young prince's appearance in england was the desertion of john's foreign troops who being mostly levied in flanders and other provinces of france refused to serve against the heir of their monarchy the gascons and pointevans alone who were still john's subjects adhered to his cause but they were too weak to maintain that superiority in the field which they had hitherto supported against the confederated barons many considerable noblemen deserted john's party the earls of salisbury arundel warren oxford albemarle and william mareschal the younger his castles fell daily into the hands of the enemy dover was the only place which from the valor and fidelity of hubert de burgh the governor made resistance to the progress of louis and the barons had the melancholy prospect of finally succeeding in their purpose and of escaping the tyranny of their own king by imposing on themselves and the nation a foreign yoke But this union was of short duration between the French and English nobles, and the imprudence of Louis, who, on every occasion, showed too visible a preference to the former, increased their jealousy, which it was so natural for the latter to entertain in their present situation. The Viscount of Mellon, too, it is said, one of his courtiers, fell sick at London, and, finding the approaches of death, he sent for some of his friends among the English barons, and warning them of their danger, revealed Louis's secret intentions of exterminating them and their families as traitors to their prince, and of bestowing their estates and dignities on his native subjects, in whose fidelity he could more reasonably place confidence. This story, whether true or false, was universally reported and believed, and concurring with other circumstances which rendered it credible, did great prejudice to the cause of Louis the earl of salisbury and other noblemen deserted again to john's party and as men easily change sides in civil war especially where their power is founded on a hereditary and independent authority and is not derived from the opinion and favour of the people the french prince had reason to dread a sudden reverse in fortune The king was assembling a considerable army with a view of fighting one great battle for his crown, but passing from Lynn to Lincolnshire, his road lay along the seashore, which was overflowed at high water, and not choosing the proper time for his journey, he lost in the inundation all his carriages, treasure, baggage, and regalia. The affliction of this disaster and vexation from the distracted state of his affairs, increased the sickness under which he then laboured, and though he reached the castle of Newark, he was obliged to halt there, and his distemper soon after put an end to his life, in the forty-ninth year of his age, and eighteenth of his reign, and freed the nation from the dangers to which it was equally exposed, by his success, or by his misfortunes. End of section 19.